Uh, we read our text this morning, and it is, for I think many of us, a pretty familiar passage, something we've maybe heard many times over. And I think there's a tendency for Bible readers or uh, often churchgoers uh, to become so familiar with the Gospels, so uh, aware of the stories, kind of know what's leading up to Easter, that we're all like, oh yeah, I've heard that, I've done that, yep, sure, that makes sense. And um, when we do that, when we take the scriptures for granted, I think what ends up happening is we lose some of the, the intrigue, the mystery, the wonder. Uh, we talk with our kids a lot upstairs about wonder and what might we wonder about in this particular passage. And this is where I think the idea of reading the Bible with imagination is so important because as we read the Bible with imagination, um, it out actually allows us to let the Word of God be the Word of God for us, to indwell us. That way, what I mean by that is that, that our eyes, our ears, our feelings are connected to the text and not just our minds. So we're not just like cognitively thinking about what might be said, but we're actually experiencing it, feeling, wondering about it. We're in some ways allowing the text to breathe or give life to what the scriptures might be saying. And so this morning, that's uh, my hope, to allow us to invite the Spirit into an imaginative understanding of this exact same passage and what might each of the characters be feeling. But before we do that, a short story, okay? Uh, I've got an image of four individuals up on the screen. You probably don't know any of these people. Uh, one on the far right, his name is John, uh, and my good friend in the middle there, Jeff, next to him, and then Buddy, and then actually, that is me. Yep, yep, uh, I had just turned 19. Yep, yep, uh, 19 years old, you're going, well, I mean, maybe I could see that, you know. Uh, but yes, this is uh, me at 19. And uh, this is me also at 19. You're still minus a frontal lobe. So I had not fully developed that yet. Um, I was on a team. It was a ministry team. So this is right after my sophomore year of college. And our college assembled a group of people. Why they picked these four dudes, I will never know. But uh, sent us out to camps and ministries kind of throughout the whole summer. So it was 12 weeks. And uh, the kind of the routine was you would drive, oftentimes through the middle of the night, arrive to a camp in the morning. You would do camp from Monday through Friday. Then you would dismiss the kids to camp. You'd drive to the next place. You'd run like a, either a Friday evening or a Saturday youth activity. Then you'd get up on Sunday. One of us would preach the message in the church on Sunday. We would drive out after Sunday night, get to the next camp, do it again, 12 weeks. Okay. We get to the last week, and the last week we're back on our college campus. Okay. So we've done 12 weeks, or, or the, our 12th week was the culminating event, which is the biggest youth activity at the college. They bring in all these students from all over. There's about 500 students, and now we're... At this one, it was kind of like a break for us because, A, we didn't have to give the lessons, which we normally did. We also, at each camp, usually ran the games. 
We also usually led worship, and then usually we're in a dorm with students, right, or in a cabin. So we're coming off an exhaustive summer, and it's the last week, and it's the second to last night, and the four of us are sitting in a dorm, hanging out. All the kids have gone to bed, and we're sitting there, and our minds just start racing. Because on the last night of camp, usually students try to pull pranks, right? They kind of get out of the dorm or out of the cabin. They do something goofy, and, uh, and then everybody gets to hear about it the next day before they leave. And so we thought we should preempt that whole thing by doing something really stupid ourselves. Again, remember, minus frontal lobe. So we, when all the kids were asleep, we decided, the four of us, to venture out. And two of the guys went to the main, like, um, building on campus where all the classrooms were and all the teachers' offices and all the administration. And they went through this building. It was four levels tall. And they turned on every light on every level the whole way up, right? And then got to the top, and we had to time it just right. They were going to ring the bell, the campus bell, so everyone in the whole area would know that something happened. At the same time, myself and another guy, we went through the entire parking lot where every bus and youth leader's van and car were, and we like soaped every car and wrote stuff and did, and then went throughout the campus doing that on like every dorm and the dining hall and again, not thinking. We come back to the dorm we timed it right. They rang the bell. The security guard, we got to watch him just run as fast as he could to try to figure out where the noise was coming from. My buddy snuck back in from the uh, woods, and we all were hanging out going, man, that was a lot of fun. We were goofy. That was stupid, right? And then the one guy on the right, John, he was student body president of the school at the time. And then uh, he was departing because he was a senior, and then Jeff, the guy next to him, was the incoming student body president, and I was the incoming student vice president. And so we had this group of guys that were doing something really stupid in the moment, and uh, what ended up happening, the the whole group, because John was the leader, he had a walkie-talkie, right? So they connect with John, and they go, something happened. There's, There's kids running around on campus. This is awful. And John goes, oh, what do you need me to do? And they're like, well, do you have any leaders on the floor with you that you could get to come out and search? And he's like, yeah, I've got Russ and Buddy and Jeff, and they'd be willing, we're just here hanging out, they'd be willing to come look. So then they assigned us to look for these just deviant kids. And so we're going throughout campus with flashlights, and then at one point, they got me and another guy into the campus van to drive around and look in the woods. And so we're like up for a couple hours, like looking for these kids. And then we'd report back, like, nothing over here. Can't find anything. I haven't seen any kids of you, right? So we're doing this whole thing. We get back, and in the morning, they had this like all leaders meeting. And so they get everybody together. And then I think it was me suggested 
that because they're like, what's going to happen tomorrow night? If they did this this night, tomorrow night's going to be awful. So I was like, well, you know what? I was talking to these guys, and we'd be willing to stay up for part of the night in the middle of campus. Maybe you could just get us some, like, donuts and coffee, and we'll hang out. And they're like, that's a great idea. So now we're, like, scouting while we're eating donuts, coffee, chilling, 1 a.m., just loving life, laughing about it, right? A year later, because we couldn't tell them then, we're going, we're, it's not going to be good if we told them. So a year later, we then go, I am that man. Like, we did that. And we're sorry, but it felt good in the moment. <laughs> and they kind of laughed it off a little, but also became a little bit suspect of us from that point forward, okay? Now, I tell you that story because there's this ability that we have at some point to raise our hand and go, that, that's me. I did that. That's on me. Or I kind of represent what's going on here. Because I think this passage sets up uniquely for us to imagine ourselves as some of the main characters in what's going on in this story. Okay? So what you have is this fascinating story of multiple characters playing out this trial. And you have Jesus, right? So Jesus is there. It's very clear what's going on in his world. We want to model what Jesus does. We want to live like Jesus. Jesus is the one who's humble, right, in the midst of crazy criticism. He's the one that remains silent in the midst of being, uh, having things said about him that are untrue. He's the one that is crafty in his responses to authority. He's the one that is um, demonstrating. He has complete power and yet demonstrates his powerlessness by submitting to the authority that's around him. And so Jesus is playing out all these things. And the, um, the interesting, amazing part about that is that most gospel messages challenge us to be like Jesus. And if we were to look at this passage and say, yes, I can live into some of those exact same qualities. But there's probably a few other characters that maybe resemble a little bit more of who we might be when we say, I am that person, right? There's Barabbas. Barabbas is the son of a rabbi. That's what his name means. He probably um, grew up in the village or grew up in that area. He was known by a lot of people. And as the text tells us, He's sitting in a jail cell. He is guilty of being an insurrectionist, guilty of crimes against the crown. He is like the most wanted list person that everybody knows about. And what's interesting is that Roman authorities often, in preparation for anyone who is an insurrectionist, would force them to make their own cross. So he probably at some point leading up to this moment has carved out his cross, has cut the logs, has shaved it down, has done whatever is necessary to get the cross ready for his ultimate death. And I want you for just a moment to put yourself in his shoes, to imagine what it would be like to be in that moment at this time. If you're in that moment, it's likely that you're incarcerated in the general vicinity of what's happening with the trial. So maybe you're like in an adjacent building. Maybe you can hear some of what's going on as the crowd begins to grow. 
There's more ruckus outside of where you're um, held captive. A lot of energy, commotion is happening. And then I want you to imagine for a moment that you're trying to listen in because you realize something's about to take place and it might not be good for you. And so just imagine this story again where Barabbas can hear some of what's being said but likely can't hear everything that's being said. So just think about, here's what he probably didn't hear. Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Pilate's asking the crowd. And the crowd, what does he probably hear them shout? Barabbas. Barabbas. Then what he probably didn't hear is Pilate saying, then what shall I do with the man you call king of the Jews? And then he probably heard their response. Crucify him. Crucify him. And then what he probably didn't hear was Pilate saying, why? What evil has he done? To which he probably heard them when the text says, they shouted all the more, crucify him. So perhaps Barabbas only heard his name over and over and over being repeated and then the crowd going, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him as the guard comes to the cell, unlocks it and goes, you, come with me. Now you've already made your cross. You're wondering when the trial's going to happen. You're wondering what's going to take place and then you hear this whole crowd, all your friends, all your neighbors, all the communities saying, we've had enough of this guy, let's end it. Now, fast forward a little bit, and you have Jesus. Jesus is charged, he's beaten, he's quite likely carrying the very cross that was intended for Barabbas. Barabbas may, after being released, followed along the path because his buddies that were guilty of insurrection with him likely hung on the two opposite sides of Jesus. And like any good preacher, this is an amazing picture of the gospel, right? So we hear this, and you've probably heard this before. But the reason we highlight Barabbas and we go, oh, I'm Barabbas, is because it so cleanly lays out the gospel goes something like this, if you've heard the sermon before, like Barabbas, we're guilty of insurrection, rebelling against the lordship and the sovereignty of God. Like Barabbas, we're imprisoned as a result of our sin, unable to free ourselves from bondage. And like Barabbas, we're as good as dead and awaiting the punishment of rebellion, but then Jesus. And that is the gospel, right? But then Jesus. Jesus, innocent and righteous, was condemned while we, clearly guilty, are released. Like Barabbas, Jesus took our place. Like Barabbas, the truly guilty one was pardoned while Jesus, the truly innocent one, was executed. And this is a picture of the gospel. And both of these characters so far that we've looked at in the text are powerful characters. Jesus being this uh, perfect God, man who substitutes his life for Barabbas. And I think we can relate to this desire to emulate Jesus. I think we can also relate in some ways to the understanding that we are Barabbas. 
But the more that I talk with people, I think there's more tension growing in our culture about the fact that I don't feel actually like I'm Barabbas. I mean, I like positionally know theologically before God that I am guilty of not being who I'm supposed to be before God, and therefore, like, I need some way of God making that right between me and him. I get that part. But the whole, like, I'm purposely trying to be an insurrectionist and rebel against the sovereignty and authority of God and who God is in the world, I'm like, I don't feel like I tried that this week. I mean, I stumbled this week for sure, but I don't feel so much like I am Barabbas. Like, I'm trying to avoid that. I'm not leaning into that, right? And our whole series has been in the book of Mark, intentions. Like, what are the intentions that we're living from? And we understand that our intentions often fall short of reality, but we still come in with the right intentions. And isn't that enough? And isn't that something? And I don't feel like I'm Barabbas. And that's why I want us to consider for a moment the third main character in the story, because I think there's something there, maybe, for us. See, Matthew and John tell this story a little bit different. They take the same passage, same context, same trial, and they tell it from a bit of a different angle. And John's gospel in particular makes this very clear. So what you have in John's gospel is fascinating because Pilate's trial happens over seven scenes, seven acts, seven different parts. And you might ask, well, how do you know there are seven different scenes? Well, there's very clear writing in the text that Pilate went out to the people and he asked a certain thing, said a certain thing, did a certain thing. And then the text tells us he went back into the palace or the meeting room to talk with Jesus, asked him questions, then went back out to the people And so you see this over and over seven different times that he went in, something happened. He went out, something happened. He went in, something happened. Also makes a lot of sense that it's seven, right? Perfection. The story's being told in a way that you would go, oh, this is exactly what was supposed to happen with the trial. So all of that is happening in this text as you read it. And he goes back and forth and back and forth. And here's what's interesting. Pilate is the only person in the story that's in all seven scenes which makes us begin to ask, is Pilate in this story the main character? And Jesus is a peripheral figure, and Barabbas is a peripheral figure, because the author, John, wanted us to know Pilate. Now, the other gospel accounts are different, but this one highlights him. So, if I was to title this talk, I would title this talk, I am Pilate. I am and Pilate. And here are the ways I'm just in transparency going to tell you that I'm Pilate and maybe you'll resonate with me in some of these exact same ways. Because whether you know this or not, most of the time when I'm writing a talk, it feels like I'm writing it for myself and you just get to maybe hear it or consider it with me. And so this is me saying before all of you, I am Pilate. Absolutely. And maybe we each are in some ways. So I might not feel like Barabbas, but I definitely feel like Pilate. I feel caught between two worlds, between two minds, between two priorities. I find myself at times with the crowd and their wishes and Jesus and his situation and the rule of Rome and the responsibilities of the role you have 
And you find yourself trapped between all these conflicting things all happening at the same time. I'm in the world, but I want to be about the kingdom. I pledge my life to the king, but then they ask me to pledge it to a flag. I want to do this, but I also, like, and I find myself torn between all of these worlds. And I sit in this space. And I think Pilate was equally torn. And so here are a few things he did. First, he ignored his conscience. The text tells us that after he had said this to the people, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. So Pilate knew in the very core of who he was that Jesus was an innocent man. Multiple times he kind of communicates that in the passage. Like this dude didn't do anything wrong and you're trying to, you're trying to end him. What is going on? This, he's innocent, completely innocent. But he ignored that because the pressure he felt, the tension he felt, may have led him to a different conclusion. He also, the text tells us, I'm not going to put it on the screen, but that his wife sent word to him and said, this man is innocent, you need to take that into account. And so he ignored what some would call their second conscience, right? Which is someone communicating that this is advice, this is like you should pay attention to this. And so he's ignoring the very things he's feeling in the text. Second, he sought public opinion. He asked the crowd for advice. At one point he says, what shall I do then with Jesus? In effect, what he's saying is, uh, Jesus told me that he came from God, but what do I do now? Any suggestions? I'm kind of caught. I'm trapped. I'm in the middle of this thing. I didn't even ask to be in this thing, and here I am. So what do you guys want to do? Any suggestions? Any thoughts, right? And what he's doing is he's kind of testing the wind, you know, like if you're a golfer, you throw up grass. It doesn't help my game, but you throw up grass and it kind of floats one way and then you're like, oh, I should probably take that into account. And then you just hit your shot and it goes 10 feet and then you're like, well, I guess it was the wind, right? <laughs> and so <laughs> you, he's in there and he probably has a profound sense of insecurity in this moment. And so he's going, uh, any, any suggestions, any help? Because I don't know what to do because I've not run across this before, a fully innocent man who the entire crowd wants to crucify, and I have to be responsible for this in some way. And maybe he felt this profound sense of disappointing others, like he's caught in a, in a catch-22. And maybe you feel this way at times, right? Every yes, every yes, yes you say, like yes, I'll do that, or yes, sure, yes, is going to cost you something. Every yes always costs you something. It makes your no's more powerful or your yes is more powerful depending on which way you lean, but every yes costs you something. But also every no carries with it at times a sense of disappointment. I said no to that person and they probably aren't very happy that I said no. So maybe I should say yes, but if I say yes, then my family will be disappointed because I took time away, or my boss will be disappointed because now I've got another thing on my plate that wasn't my area of oversight, and then, like, and so if I say no, somebody's really going to be sad, and if I say yes, somebody's really going to be sad. Any suggestions? I don't know if you've ever felt like you're in that space, but I'm going to guess Pilate did. We get to this next one, and this is what I would call, this is your decision approach. Um, so Pilate, the text says, when 
Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning. So he's trying this like, yes, no, any suggestions. He took water and washed his hands before the crowd and saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood will be on us and on our children. And then he released for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. This is the, what I would call, this is your decision approach. So he says, okay, okay. So you want me to crucify Jesus, fine, I'm going to crucify him, but I want everyone to know, not my decision. I didn't, like, come up with this plan. That's not what I was thinking, right? Um, and so this is where we tend to, at times, let others make decisions for us. We go, well, I kind of am responsible for the decision, but I don't really want to make the decision. So if I, like, kind of play my cards right, you'll have to make the decision, and then if it goes bad, I haven't really committed to it because it wasn't my decision, Right? It was really your decision. And then the person that you're doing that to feels like, you're always putting the decision on me. Why is it my decision? Because it's really your decision. I don't, again, I don't know if you relate at all to any of this, but you find yourself in that space, and I go, man, well, here's why I don't want to do that, because now I can still have the narrative that I didn't make that decision. And that's Pilate's going, yeah, I want the narrative to be, I want history to say, I didn't make this decision. That was yours. Right? So you made the decision. Maybe, again, you relate to that. Or, same passage of Scripture. This is the, what I call the transfer of guilt slash blame shifting. Right? Where he says, I am innocent of the blood of this man. You see to it. So it's not me. It's you. I didn't do this. You did this. Right? Um, and this has been around kind of since the beginning of time. Right? This idea of blame shifting. You may have heard this. The man being Adam. Adam says, uh, the woman who you gave to me to be with me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. I mean, he did a double blame shift, right? So this person that you gave me, right? So it's kind of your fault, God, because I didn't ask for this right? And what, what other options did I have, right? Like, and then she gave it to me. Well, and then, yes, I ate it, right? But it's like the double blame shift. And again, I, if I'm Pilate and I'm in that situation, I'm going, yeah, blame shifting's been here from the beginning. I'll try that. That'll work too. It's not my fault. It's your fault. I didn't do it. You did it, right? So all of these responses, I think, are present in Pilate, and I think it might be because we feel this tension that I described at the beginning, right? I'm torn between these two worlds. I'm caught in this space, and I don't know how to navigate it, and I'm asking, to what side do I belong? Who should get my attention? Who should get my affection? Who should get my loyalty? Who should get my right? Henry Nouwen speaks into this in a unique way. This is a little bit of a longer quote, but I think it bears repeating. At issue here is the question, to whom do I belong? God or to the world? Many of my daily preoccupations suggest that I belong more to the world than to God. A little criticism makes me angry and a little rejection makes me depressed. A little praise raises my spirits and a little success excites me. It takes very little to raise me up or thrust me down. 
Often, I am like a small boat on the ocean, completely at the mercy of its waves. All the time and energy I spend in keeping some kind of balance and preventing myself from being tipped over and drowning shows that my life is mostly a struggle for survival. Not a holy struggle, but an anxious struggle, resulting from the mistaken idea that it is this world, um, that is this world that defines me. As long as I keep running and asking, do you love me? Do you really love me? I give all power to the voices of this world and I put myself in bondage because the world is filled with ifs. The world says, yes, I love you if you're a good-looking, intelligent, wealthy. I love you if you have a good education, a good job, and good connections. I love you if you produce much, sell much, and buy much. There are endless ifs hidden in the world's love. These ifs enslave me since it is impossible to respond adequately to all of them. The world's love is and always will be conditional as long as I keep looking for my true self. In the world of conditional love, I will remain hooked to the world, trying, failing, and trying again. It is a world that fosters addictions because what it offers cannot satisfy the deepest craving of my heart. I feel for Pilate in that moment. I think Pilate's gotten a bad rap, if I'm honest. I blame that on the creeds. Specifically, the one that says, suffered under Pontius Pilate. It's kind of a bad rap. Like, that's the history right there. All summed up his whole life. Suffered under Pontius Pilate. Oh, oh, that's rough. We have taken a pretty negative look at who Pilate was. So I want us this morning, kind of in conclusion, to imagine for a moment that it went the other way. Here's what I want you to imagine. See, it was the custom of that day during the Passover festival that the Roman governor would release a prisoner. And usually the choice for who was released was wide open. So it was, who would you like me to release? End of story. And then they could all kind of debate, dialogue, come back with a conclusion, and then that person would be released. However, Pilate, in a unique way, does the choosing. He ordered the soldiers to go down into the prison and bring up the worst criminal in his jail, a man named Barabbas, a man who had just been guilty of insurrection, a man probably known to the whole community and a bit despised. Pilate would then permit the Jews to choose between good and evil, between a man who was the embodiment of all that was good and right in the world and a man who was the embodiment of all that is evil. So he said, I find no fault in this man. He's perfect. And then he told the religious leaders at one point, you handled the trial, and they pushed it back on him. So then, to ensure that it would go the way he thought it would go, he goes, all right, this man, not guilty. This man, truth. This man, perfect. This man, nothing wrong against him. Here's your option. Do you want this man? Or do you want the worst I got to offer? Assuming, why would you not choose this man? Right? He even 
says the words a bit like a threat, if you read it that way. Pilate says, if you do not choose Jesus, I am going to release Barabbas. Who do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or this man called Christ? So from another perspective, he actually fought for his release. Washing his hands was in some ways a bit of an act of worship. Some within the church have described it as a bit of a baptism, like a cleansing. Legend has it that he was the one that actually wrote the words on the cross, King of the Jews. In fact, St. Augustine, writing in the 6th century, argued that Pilate's words, where he wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, what he really meant by Augustine's words, it could not be torn from his heart that Jesus was the King of the Jews, at the very core of who Pilate was. He didn't say this out of mockery. He said this out of worship. In fact, he was the first evangelist. He was the one that said, before this even happens, let me declare for you who this really is. I think I am, and maybe you are too, equal parts Pontius Pilate, equal parts sinner, juggling, struggling, wondering, and equal parts saint, speaking to the kingdom telling people of the identity of who Jesus is, and we find ourselves in that weird, unique space. And we have for so long thought of Pilate as the one who made Jesus suffer. I find it really interesting that the Coptic church, the Ethiopian church, on June 25th, it is the day of Saint Pontius Pilate. There's a festival every year that speaks of the significance of his testimony and who he was in his life after this moment. But again, we just put it in one moment. You and I are a contradiction of terms. You and I struggle some days being Pilate who maybe look to get out of the situation and blame shift, and the next day being the someone that goes, tries to stand up for Jesus, tries to create an opportunity for Jesus, and then is the first to declare who Jesus really is. And we're a little bit of both. And I think Jesus wants to remind us of this, and I'll finish with another Henry Nouwen quote. You are not what you do, although you do a lot. You are not what you have collected in terms of friendships and connections, although you might have many. You are not the popularity that you have received. You are not the success of your work. You are not what people say about you, whether they speak well or whether they speak poorly about you. All these things that keep you quite busy, quite occupied, and often quite preoccupied are not telling the truth about who you are. I am here to remind you in the name of God that you are the beloved daughters and sons of God and that God says to you, I have called you from all eternity and you are engraved from all eternity in the palms of my hands. You are mine, you belong to me, and I love you with an everlasting love. And this morning, as we partake of communion, we get to remind ourselves that whether we resonate with who Barabbas is, the table is for you. Whether you resonate with who Pilate is on his worst days, the table is for you. Whether you resonate 
Pontius Pilate being one to declare who God is in the midst of an angry crowd, the table is for you. You are welcome to the table. You are welcomed with grace. Let me pray. God, we enter into this time of worship, engaging, wondering, imagining again what it would be like to be in this particular situation, in this particular story, at this particular moment, and we see you speak to us from the pages. We see them come alive in ways that remind us that we are a bit of, a, bit of a contradiction of terms, that we're equal parts sinner, equal parts saint, but all of us need you. So God, may we in this moment recognize that we're not just what we do, but we are who we are in light of you. And may our time of worship and singing, may our time of worship with the elements remind us of your goodness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.